0: book five chapter one of on the ends of good and evil by cicero translated by harris rackham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Geoffrey edwards my dear brutus once i had been attending a lecture of antiochus as i was in the habit of doing with marcus piso in the building called the school of ptolemy and with us were my brother Quintus, titus pomponius and lucius cicero whom i loved as a brother but who was really my first cousin we arranged to take our afternoon stroll in the academy chiefly because the place would be quiet and deserted at that hour of the day accordingly at the time appointed we met at our rendezvous piso's lodgings and starting out conversed on various subjects while we covered the three-quarters of a mile from the Dipulon gate when we reached the walks of the academy which are so deservedly famous we had them entirely to ourselves as we had hoped thereupon piso remarked whether it is a natural instinct or a mere illusion i can't say but one's emotions are more strongly aroused by seeing the places that tradition records to have been the favourite resort of men of note in former days than by hearing about their deeds or reading their writings my own feelings at the present moment are a case in point i am reminded of plato the first philosopher so we are told that made a practice of holding discussions in this place and indeed his garden close at hand yonder not only recalls his memory but seems to bring the actual man before my eyes this was the haunt of spelsippus of xenocrates and of xenocrates pupil polema who used to sit on the very seat we see over there for my own part even the site of our senate house at home i mean the curia hostilia not the present new building which seems to me to be smaller since its enlargement used to call up to me thoughts of Scipio, Cato, Lilius, and, chief of all, my grandfather. Such powers of suggestion do places possess. No wonder the scientific training of the memory is based upon locality. Perfectly true, Piso, rejoined Quintus. I myself, on the way here just now, noticed yonder village of Colinos, and it brought to my imagination Sophocles, who resided there, And who is as you know my great admiration and delight indeed my memory took me further back for i had a vision of oedipus advancing towards this very spot and asking in those most tender verses what place is this a mere fancy no doubt yet still it affected me strongly for my part said pomponius you are fond of attacking me as a follower of epicurus and i do spend much of my time with phaedrus who as you know is my dearest friend in epicurus's gardens which we passed just now but i obey the old saw i think of those that are alive still i could not forget epicurus even if i wanted the members of our body not only have pictures of him but even have his likeness on their drinking cups and rings chapter two As for our friend Pomponius, I interposed, I believe he is joking, and no doubt he is a licensed wit, for he has so taken root in Athens that he is almost an Athenian. In fact, I expect he will get the surname of Atticus. But I, Piso, agree with you. It is a common experience that places do strongly stimulate the imagination and vivify our ideas of famous men you remember how i once came with you to metapontum and would not go to the house where we were to stay until i had seen the abode of pythagoras and the very place where he breathed his last all over athens i know there are many reminders of eminent men in the actual places where they lived but at the present moment it is that hall over there which appeals to me for not long ago it belonged to carneades i fancy i see him now for his portrait is well known and i can imagine that the very place where he used to sit misses the sound of his voice and mourns the loss of that mighty intellect well then said piso as we all have some association that appeals to us what is it that interests our young friend lucius does he enjoy visiting the spot where demosthenes and ischenes used to fight their battles for we are all mainly influenced by our own particular study pray don't ask me answered lucius with a blush i have actually made a pilgrimage down to the bay of phalerum where they say demosthenes used to practice declaiming on the beach to learn to pitch his voice so as to overcome an uproar also only just now i turned off the road a little way on the right to visit the tomb of pericles though in fact there is no end to it in this city wherever you go you tread historic ground well cicero said piso these enthusiasms befit a young man of parts if they lead him to copy the example of the great if they only stimulate antiquarian curiosity they are mere dilettantism but we all of us exhort you and i hope it is a case of spurring a willing steed To resolve to imitate your heroes as well as to know about them he is practicing your precepts already piso said i as you are aware but all the same thank you for encouraging him well said piso with his usual amiability let us all join forces to promote the lad's improvement and especially let us try to make him spare some of his interest for philosophy either so as to follow the example of yourself for whom he has such an affection or in order to be better equipped for the very study to which he is devoted. But, Lucius, he asked, do you need our urging, or have you a natural leaning of your own towards philosophy? You are keeping Antiochus's lectures, and seem to me to be a pretty attentive listener. I try to be, replied Lucius, with a timid or rather a modest air. But have you heard any lectures on Carnades lately? He attracts me immensely but antiochus calls me in the other direction and there is no other lecturer to go to chapter three perhaps said piso it will not be altogether easy while our friend here meaning me is by still i will venture to urge you to leave the present new academy for the old which includes as you heard antiochus declare not only those who bear the name of academics Xenocrates. Ptolema, Crantor, and the rest but also the early peripatetics headed by their chief aristotle who if plato be accepted i almost think deserves to be called the prince of philosophers do you then join them i beg of you from their writings and teachings can be learnt the whole of liberal culture of history and of style moreover they include such a variety of sciences that without the equipment that they give no one can be adequately prepared to embark on any of the higher careers they have produced orators generals and statesmen to come to the less distinguished professions this factory of experts in all the sciences has turned out mathematicians poets musicians and physicians you know that i agree with you about that piso i replied but you have raised the point most opportunely for my cousin cicero is eager to hear the doctrine of the old academy of which you speak and of the peripatetics on the subject of the ends of goods we feel sure you can expound it with the greatest ease for you have had stasius from naples in your household for many years and also we know you have been studying this very subject under antiochus for several months at athens Here goes then, replied Piso, smiling. For you have craftily arranged so that our discussion shall start with me. Let me see what I can do to give the lad a lecture. If an oracle had foretold that I should find myself discoursing in the academy like a philosopher, I should not have believed it. But here I am, thanks to the place being so deserted. Only, don't let me bore the rest of you while I am obliging our young friend." what bore me said i why it is i who asked you to speak thereupon Quintus and pomponius having declared that they wished it too piso began and i will ask you brutus kindly to consider whether you think his discourse a satisfactory summary of the doctrine of antiochus which i believe to be the system which you most approve as you have often attended the lectures of his brother aristus chapter four accordingly piso spoke as follows about the educational value of the peripatetic system i have said enough in the briefest possible way a few moments ago its arrangement like that of most other systems is threefold one part deals with nature the second with discourse and the third with conduct natural philosophy the peripatetics have investigated so thoroughly that no region in sky or sea or land to speak poetically has been passed over nay more in treating of the origin of creation and the constitution of the universe they have established much of their doctrine not merely by probable arguments but by conclusive mathematical demonstration applying a quantity of material derived from facts that they have themselves investigated to the discovery of other facts beyond the reach of observation aristotle gave a complete account of the birth nutrition and structure of all living creatures theophrastus of the natural history of plants and the causes and constitution of vegetable organisms in general and the knowledge thus attained facilitated the investigation of the most obscure questions. In logic, their teachings include the rules of rhetoric as well as of dialectic, and Aristotle, their founder, set on foot the practice of arguing pro and contra upon every topic, not, like Arcesilaus, always controverting every proposition, but setting out all the possible arguments on either side in every subject the third division of philosophy investigates the rules of human well-being this too was treated by the peripatetics so as to comprise not only the principles of individual conduct but also of the government of states from aristotle we learn the customs institutions and regulations and from theophrastus the laws also of nearly all the states not only of greece but of the barbarians as well both described the proper qualifications of a sovereign both moreover wrote lengthy treatises on the best form of constitution theophrastus treated more fully the subject of political vicissitudes and movements which have to be controlled as the occasion demands among the alternative ideals of conduct they gave the highest place to the life of retirement devoted to contemplation and to study this was pronounced to be most worthy of the wise man as most nearly resembling the life of the gods these topics they handle in a style as brilliant as it is illuminating chapter five their books on the subject of the chief good fall into two classes one popular in style and this class they used to call their exoteric works the other more carefully wrought the latter treatises they left in the form of notebooks this distinction occasionally gives them an appearance of inconsistency. But as a matter of fact, in the main bulk of their doctrine there is no divergence, at all events, among the philosophers I have mentioned, and no disagreement between them. But on the chief object of inquiry, namely happiness, and the one question which philosophy has to consider and to investigate, whether this lies entirely within the control of the wise man or whether it can be impaired or destroyed by adversity, here there does appear sometimes to exist among them some divergence and uncertainty. This effect is chiefly produced by Theophrastus's book, Unhappiness, in which a very considerable amount of importance is assigned to fortune. For, if this be correct, wisdom alone could not guarantee happiness. This theory seems to me to be, if I may so call it, too enervating and unmanly to be adequate to the force and dignity of virtue hence we had better keep to aristotle and his son nicomachus the latter's elaborate volumes on ethics are ascribed it is true to aristotle but i do not see why the son should not have been capable of emulating the father still we may use theophrastus on most points so long as we maintain a larger element of strength and solidity in virtue than he did Let us, then, limit ourselves to these authorities. Their successors are indeed, in my opinion, superior to the philosophers of any other school, but are so unworthy of their ancestry that one might imagine them to have been their own fathers. To begin with, Theophrastus's pupil, Strato, set up to be a natural philosopher, but, great as he is in this department, he is, nevertheless, for the most part, an innovator and on ethics he has hardly anything his successor lyco has a copious style but his matter is somewhat barren lyco's pupil aristo is polished and graceful but has not the authority that we expect to find in a great thinker he wrote much it is true and he wrote well but his style is somehow lacking in weight i pass over a number of writers including the learned and entertaining hieronymus Indeed, I know no reason for calling the latter a peripatetic at all, for he defined the chief good as freedom from pain, and to hold a different view of the chief good is to hold a different system of philosophy altogether. Quetileus professed to imitate the ancients, and he does in fact come nearest to them in weight, while his style is copious to a degree. All the same, even he is not true to his ancestral principles. Diodorus, his pupil, couples with moral worth, freedom from pain. He, too, stands by himself. Differing about the chief good, he cannot correctly be called a peripatetic. Our master, Antiochus, seems to me to adhere most scrupulously to the doctrine of the ancients, which, according to his teaching, was common to Aristotle and to Polyma. Chapter 6 our young friend lucius is therefore well advised in desiring most of all to hear about the chief good for when you have settled that point in a system of philosophy you have settled everything on any other topic some degree of incompleteness or uncertainty causes no more mischief than is proportionate to the importance of the particular topic on which the neglect has occurred But uncertainty as to the chief good necessarily involves uncertainty as to the principles of conduct, and this must carry men so far out of their course that they cannot know what harbour to steer for. On the other hand, when we have ascertained the ends of things, knowing the ultimate good and ultimate evil, we have discovered a map of life, a chart of all the duties, and therefore have discovered a standard to which each action may be referred and from this we can discover and construct that rule of happiness which all desire now there is great difference of opinion as to what constitutes the ultimate end let us therefore adopt the classification of carneades which our teacher antiochus is very fond of employing carneades passed in review all the opinions as to the chief good not only that actually had been held by philosophers hitherto but that it was possible to hold. He then pointed out that no science or art can start wholly from itself. It must always have some subject-matter which is outside itself. There is no need to enlarge upon or illustrate this point, for it is evident that no art is occupied with itself. The art is distinct from the subject with which it deals. Since, therefore, as medicine is the art of health, and navigation the art of sailing the ship, So prudence or practical wisdom is the art of conduct. It follows that prudence also must take its being and origin from something. Now practically all have agreed that the subject with which prudence is occupied and the end which it desires to attain is bound to be something intimately adapted to our nature. It must be capable of directly arousing and awakening an impulse of desire, what in Greek is called me. but what it is that at the first moment of our existence excites in our nature this impulse of desire as to this there is no agreement it is at this point that all the difference of opinion among students of the ethical problem arises of the whole inquiry into the ends of goods and evils and the question which among them is ultimate and final the fountain-head is to be found in the earliest instincts of nature Discover these, and you have the source of the stream, the starting point of the debate as to the chief good and evil. Chapter 7. One school holds that our earliest desire is for pleasure, and our earliest repulsion is from pain. Another thinks that freedom from pain is the earliest thing welcomed, and pain the earliest thing avoided. Others again start from what they term the primary objects in accordance with nature among which they reckon the soundness and safety of all the parts of the body health perfect senses freedom from pain strength beauty and the like analogous to which are the primary intellectual excellences which are the sparks and seeds of the virtues now it must be one or other of these three sets of things which first excites our nature to feel desire or repulsion nor can it be anything whatsoever besides these three things it follows therefore that every right act of avoidance or of pursuit is aimed at one of these objects and that consequently one of these three must form the subject-matter of prudence which we spoke of as the art of life from one of the three prudence derives the initial motive of the whole of conduct now from whichever prudence decides to be the object of the primary natural impulses will arise a theory of right and of moral worth which may correspond with one or other of the three objects aforesaid thus morality will consist either in aiming all our actions at pleasure even though one may not succeed in attaining it or at absence of pain even though one is unable to secure it or at getting the things in accordance with nature even though one does not attain any of them. Hence there is a divergence between the different conceptions as to the ends of goods and evils, precisely equivalent to the difference of opinion as to the primary natural objects. Others, again, starting from the same primary objects, will make the sole standard of right action the actual attainment of pleasure, freedom from pain, or the primary things in accordance with nature, respectively thus we have now set forth six views as to the chief good the leading upholders of the latter three are of pleasure aristippus of freedom from pain hieronymus of the enjoyment of what we have called the primary things in accordance with nature carneades that is he did not originate this view but he upheld it for polemical purposes the three former were possible views but only one of them has been actually maintained though that with great vigour no one has asserted pleasure to be the sole aim of action in the sense that the mere intention of attaining pleasure although unsuccessful is in itself desirable and moral and the only good nor yet has any one held that the effort to avoid pain is in itself a thing desirable without one's being able actually to avoid it on the other hand That morality consists in using every endeavour to obtain the things in accordance with nature and that this endeavour even though unsuccessful is itself the sole thing desirable and the sole good is actually maintained by the stoics chapter eight these then are the six simple views about the end of goods and evils two of them without a champion and four actually upheld of composite or dualistic definitions of the supreme good there have been three in all nor were more than three possible if you examine the nature of the case closely there is the combination of morality with pleasure adopted by Calipha and denomachos with freedom from pain by diodorus or with the primary objects of nature the view of the ancients as we entitle both the academics and the peripatetics but it is impossible to set forth the whole of our position at once so for the present we need only notice that pleasure must be discarded on the ground that as will be shown later we are intended by nature for greater things freedom from pain is open to practically the same objections as pleasure nor need we look for other arguments to refute the opinion of carneades for any conceivable account of the chief good which does not include the factor of moral worth gives a system under which there is no room either for duty virtue or friendship moreover the combination with moral worth either of pleasure or of freedom from pain debases the very morality that it aims at supporting for to uphold two standards of conduct jointly one of which declares freedom from evil to be the supreme good while the other is a thing concerned with the most frivolous part of our nature, is to dim, if not to defile all the radiance of moral worth. There remain the Stoics, who took over their whole system from the Peripatetics and the Academics, adopting the same ideas under other names. The best way to deal with these different schools would be to refute each separately, but for the present we must keep to the business in hand. We will discuss these other schools at our leisure the calmness or tranquillity of mind which is the chief good of democritus elthumia as he calls it has had to be excluded from this discussion because this mental tranquillity is in itself the happiness in question and we are inquiring not what happiness is but what produces it again the discredited and abandoned theories of pyrrho aristo and aralus cannot be brought within the circle we have drawn and so we have not been concerned to consider them at all for the whole of this inquiry into the ends or so to speak the limits of goods and evils must begin from that which we have spoken of as adapted and suited to nature and which is the earliest object of desire for its own sake now this is entirely done away with by those who maintain that in the sphere of things which contain no element of moral worth or baseness there is no reason why any one thing should be preferred to any other and who consider these things to be absolutely indifferent and eralus also if he actually held that there is nothing good but knowledge destroyed every motive of rational action and every clue to right conduct thus we have eliminated the views of all the other philosophers and no other view is possible therefore this doctrine of the ancients must hold good. Let us, then, follow the practice of the old philosophers, adopted also by the Stoics, and make this our starting-point. Chapter 9. Every living creature loves itself, and from the moment of birth strives to secure its own preservation, because the earliest impulse bestowed on it by nature for its lifelong protection is the instinct for self-preservation, And for the maintenance of itself in the best condition possible to it in accordance with its nature. At the outset, this tendency is vague and uncertain, so that it merely aims at protecting itself, whatever its character may be. It does not understand itself, nor its own capacities and nature. When, however, it has grown a little older, and has begun to notice the measure in which different things affect and concern itself, it now gradually commences to make progress self-consciousness dawns and the creature begins to understand the reason why it possesses the instinctive appetition aforesaid and to try to obtain the things which it perceives to be adapted to its nature and to repel their opposites every living creature therefore finds its object of appetition in the thing suited to its nature thus arises the end of goods namely to live in accordance with nature and in that condition which is the best and most suited to nature that is possible at the same time every animal has its own nature and consequently while for all alike the end consists in the satisfaction of that nature for there is no reason why certain things should not be common to all the lower animals and also to the lower animals and man since all have a common nature yet the ultimate and supreme objects that we are investigating must be differentiated and distributed among the different kinds of animals each kind having its own peculiar to itself and adapted to the requirements of its individual nature hence when we say that the end of all living creatures is to live in accordance with nature this must not be construed as meaning that all have one and the same end but just as it is correct to say that all the arts and sciences have the common characteristic of occupying themselves with some branch of knowledge while each art has its own particular branch of knowledge belonging to it so all animals have the common end of living according to nature but their natures are diverse so that one thing is in accordance with nature for the horse another for the ox and another for man and yet in all the supreme end is common and that not only in animals but also in all those things upon which nature bestows nourishment increase and protection among these things we notice that plants can in a sense perform on their own behalf a number of actions conducive to their life and growth so that they may attain their end after their kind so that finally we may embrace all animate existence in one broad generalization and say without hesitation that all nature is self-preserving and has before it the end and aim of maintaining itself in the best possible condition after its kind and that consequently all things endowed by nature with life have a similar but not an identical end this leads to the inference that the ultimate good of man is life in accordance with nature which we may interpret as meaning life in accordance with human nature, developed to its full perfection, and supplied with all its needs. This, then, is the theory that we have to expound. But if it requires a good deal of explanation, you will receive it with forbearance, for this is perhaps the first time that Lucius has heard the subject debated, and we must make allowance for his use. A very true," said I, Albeit the style of your discourse so far has been suited to hearers of any age. Chapter 10. Well, then, he resumed, having explained what the principle is which determines what things are desirable, I have next to show why the matter is as I have stated. Let us therefore begin from the position which I laid down first, and which is also first in the order of reality. Let us understand that every living creature loves itself. The fact that this is so admits of no doubt, for indeed it is a fundamental fact of nature, and one that everybody can grasp for himself by the evidence of his senses. So much so, that did anyone choose to deny it, he would not get a hearing. Nevertheless, so that no step may be omitted, I suppose I ought also to give reasons to show why it is so. Yet how can you form any intelligible conception of an animal that should hate itself? the thing is a contradiction in terms. For the creature being its own enemy, the instinctive appetition we spoke of will deliberately set about drawing to itself something harmful to itself. Yet it will be doing this for its own sake. Therefore the animal will both hate and love itself at the same time, which is impossible. Also, if a man is his own enemy, it follows that he will think good evil and evil good that he will avoid things that are desirable, and seek things that ought to be avoided. But this, undeniably, would mean to turn the whole of life upside down. A few people may be found who attempt to end their lives with a halter, or by other means, but these, or the character of Terence, who, in his own words, resolved that if he made himself to suffer, he so made less the wrong he did his son, are not to be put down as haters of themselves. The motive with some is grief, with others passion. Many are rendered insane by anger, and plunge into ruin with their eyes open, fancying all the time that what they do is for their own best interests. Hence they say, and say in all sincerity, It is my way. Do you do as it suits you. Men who had really declared war against themselves would court days of torment and nights of anguish, nor would they reproach themselves for having done so, and say that they had been misguided and imprudent. Such lamentations show that they love and care for themselves. It follows that whenever it is said of a man that he has ruined himself, and is his own worst enemy, and that he is tired of life, you may be sure that there is really an explanation which would justify the inference, even from such a case as this, that every man loves himself nor is it enough to say that nobody exists who hates himself. We must also realize that nobody exists who thinks it makes no difference to him what his own condition is. For it will be destructive of the very faculty of desire if we come to think of our own circumstances as a matter of indifference to us, and feel, in our own case, the absolute neutrality which is our attitude towards the things that are really indifferent. CHAPTER Eleven. It would also be utterly absurd if anyone desired to maintain that, though the fact of self-love is admitted, this instinct of affection is really directed towards some other object and not towards the person himself who feels it. When this is said of friendship, of right action or of virtue, whether correct or not, it has some intelligible meaning. But in the case of ourselves it is utterly meaningless to say that we love ourselves for the sake of something else. For example, for the sake of pleasure. Clearly, we do not love ourselves for the sake of pleasure, but pleasure for the sake of ourselves. Yet what fact is more self-evident than that every man not merely loves himself, but loves himself very much indeed? For who is there? What percentage of mankind whose blood does not ebb with horror and face turn pale with fear? At the approach of death, no doubt it is a fault to recoil so violently from the dissolution of our being and the same timidity in regard to pain is blameworthy but the fact that practically everybody has this feeling is conclusive proof that nature shrinks from destruction and the more some people act thus as indeed they do to a blameworthy degree the more it is to be inferred that this very excess would not have occurred in exceptional cases were not a certain moderate degree of such timidity natural. I am not referring to the fear of death felt by those who shun death because they believe it means the loss of the good things of life, or because they are afraid of certain horrors after death, or if they dread, lest death may be painful. For very often young children who do not think of any of these things are terribly frightened if in fun we threaten to let them fall from a height even wild creatures says Pacuius, lacking discourse of reason to look before when seized with fear of death bristle with horror who does not suppose that the wise man himself even when he has resolved that he must die will yet be affected at parting from his friends and quitting the very light of day the strength of natural impulse in this manifestation of it is extremely obvious since many men endure to beg their bread in order that they may live, and men, broken with age, suffer anguish at the approach of death, and endure torments like those of Philoctetes in the play, who, though racked with intolerable pains, nevertheless prolonged his life by fowling. Slow he pierced the swift with arrows, standing shot them on the wing. As Attius has it, and wove their plumage together to make himself garments but do i speak of the human race or of animals generally when the nature of trees and plants is almost the same for whether it be as very learned men have thought that this capacity has been engendered in them by some higher and diviner power or whether it is the result of chance we see that the vegetable species secure by means of their bark and roots that support and protection which animals derive from the distribution of the sensory organs and from the well-knit framework of the limbs on this matter i agree it is true with those who hold that all these things are regulated by nature because if nature were to neglect them her own existence would be impossible yet i allow those who think otherwise on this point to hold what view they please whenever i mention the nature of man let them, if they like, understand me to mean man, as it makes no difference. For the individual can no more lose the instinct to seek the things that are good for him than he can divest himself of his own personality. The wisest authorities have therefore been right in finding the basis of the chief good in nature, and in holding that this instinctive desire for things suited to our nature is innate in all men, because it is founded on that natural attraction which makes them love themselves. End of chapter 11 of book 5. Recording in memory of Mitchell Edwards.